All right, welcome back to Lindroth Hockey Podcast. We are in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions, LLC. You are here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Look, I'm 53 years old. You know, whenever we have a player that's around my age in the era of the 80s and 90s, I go nuts about our guests. So this guy is probably the biggest uh, one we've had yet. So go right into the intro. Let's get talking hockey and and some other things. Yeah, so today we obviously have a special guest that he doesn't need a long intro, but he's a seven-time NHL All-Star, Stanley Cup champion, World Junior Winter Olympic gold medalist, over 1,000 points, over 1,000 games played in the NHL. The list goes on. Today, not only we're going to cover a little bit of hockey, but we will also talk about his journey through mental health issues, trauma, and healing as well. So without further ado, please welcome our guest today, Theo Fleury. Theo, how are you doing today? I'm doing awesome, boys. Good to see you. Good to yeah, see man, you. Thank you for joining. So, Theo, I want to get right into it. You started playing hockey around age five. So you say that you fell in love with hockey the first time you hit the ice. So besides hockey being the national sport in Canada, what was it about hockey that you fell in love with? Uh, well, you know, I've said this many times, you know, I, I, I grew up in a pretty difficult home where both my parents, uh, struggled with their own childhood trauma stuff. And, you know, that manifested itself into addictive behavior as a coping mechanism to suppress, you know, the, the emotional pain and scars that were left behind by their experience. And, and so, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I remember that day almost perfectly. Um, you know, I was walking home with a classmate of mine and it was like, it was like a nice spring day in Canada, you know, in November, minus 35 with the wind chill, minus, <laughs> minus a thousand, right? You know, and uh, <clears throat> he said to me, he said, hey, we're having our first hockey practice tonight. Would you like to come and play? And I was like, sure, you know, and I don't really have any memories uh, of ever putting on a pair of skates at that point in my life. I can't remember if I did or not. So I went home. I asked my mom if we had any equipment. So we searched around the house and we found an old pair of skates that were probably, I don't know, two, three sizes too big, a broken hockey stick, some stinky, <laughs> stinky, smelly hockey gloves. And um, I used a couple of Sears catalogs as shin pads, you know, and I put all this, you know, I put all this stuff in a hockey sack, in a pillow sack. And I went to my first hockey practice. And you know, I actually have a picture that's in my book. So the very first picture in that book that I wrote is that exact moment frozen in time, right? And there's there's something really interesting about the picture was I was going to my first hockey practice ever in my life. First time I think I'd ever put on a pair of skates and I'm alone in the picture. My parents didn't take me to my first hockey practice, oh, right? No. So I show up at this at this rink, which was an old barn that they converted into an ice rink. Okay. I lived in a town of 300 people. Wow. Okay. So I put on all this gear and I step on the ice and I don't fall down and I don't struggle. And I absolutely fall head over heels in love with hockey in that moment. Because I felt for the first time, I think in my life, I felt free. Uh, 
you know, I felt happy. I was at peace, you know, and, and so, you know, throughout my whole entire life, even though I'm 53 years old and, you know, I, I play some alumni games uh, with my, with my old teammates, every time I step on the ice, I get the same feeling that I had when I was five years old. Wow. And you were really, I mean, you've always been humble, you know, about your career. I mean, we've discussed the numbers very briefly, but at what point did you start to realize, I mean, you had mentioned you weren't falling over and struggling like everybody else would on skates at five. At what point did you realize, you know, I've got some talent here and maybe hockey is my thing and maybe I could do something with it. At what right. point did you feel that? Well, my first year of organized hockey, I scored a hundred goals. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, yeah, you realize you're pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. And then, you know, hockey was everything, right. It, it it absolutely, uh, you know, was everything in my life, right? You know, and you know, I, I love sports in general, you know. So, um, I was actually a better baseball player than I was a hockey player, if you can believe that. But wow. uh, you know, there weren't too many five foot six catchers in the major leagues at that time, and yeah. uh, in Canada, it's really hard to. Uh, you know, to become a professional in baseball, it's getting better as we go, as we go along here. But at that time, you know, nobody was going to the U S and getting a scholarship to play baseball at university or whatever. So, so I chose hockey as, as you know, and, and I Ray from day one, you know, that that's what I wanted my life to be. I wanted to be a professional hockey player and everything I did in my life, uh, you know, was geared towards, you know, getting, getting to that, you know, that place and that opportunity. Right. So, and so, obviously, and obviously, <clears throat> you know, I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody told me I was too small and I wasn't going to make it. Right. right. And, uh, um, but that, that just fueled, you know, fueled the fire inside of me. And, and, uh, I didn't listen to the noise and, uh, you know, I had a real sense of belief in myself and, and, uh, you know, I worked up, I, I, I lived in a community. It was a farming community. So I saw people get up at six o'clock in the morning and work till 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, they were all successful. They had nice houses. They drove nice cars, went on vacations. And I, you know, I said to myself, geez, if I just work hard, you know, I can have what these people have, you know, and, and so, um, you know, I always prided myself on work, you know, when I stepped on the ice, nobody was going to outwork me, you know, nobody was going to outwork me, nobody was going to outcompete me. And, you know, that's what I used to overcome, you know, the size, you know, I was ultra talented, I was way more talented than everybody else I was playing against. But, you know, for a little guy like me, especially in the eighties and the nineties, when, you know, it was, it was a brutal, violent game, you know, I needed to get room on the ice and, and my competitiveness is what got me the room on the ice so that I could do so that my skill set could take over. Well, yeah. And you never hear anybody being five foot, 680 pounds and a power forward. So what, what went through your mind? I mean, was that something you knew you had to do to survive? in the NHL, your size through the eighties and nineties, or did you, would your skill have gotten you there on your own? At what point did you say, I'm going to be a pretty tough guy to stick up for my teammates and mm. be you know, a really tough player? Yeah. Well, that style developed in junior hockey. So 
Uh, I played in the Western Hockey League, uh, which is one at that time was probably the toughest league on the planet. And, uh, and so, um, and so, you know, I played, I played my first year in the Western Hockey League, I was five foot three, 125 pounds, my first year in the Western Hockey League. Okay. And uh, so one night we went up to Prince Albert and Prince Albert had the best team in junior hockey. Okay. And so I was standing on the, on the, on the blue line, listening to the anthem. Okay. And I looked across the ice and who was standing there, Ken Baumgartner and Dave Manson. Okay. And the first shift in that game, Dave Manson hit me so hard. I thought I broke every single bone in my body. And I said to myself, that can never happen again. Right. And so, you know, that's from that, you know, moment, I quickly realized that my hockey stick could be a great equalizer. And so I became really, really good, you know, with my stick. And, um, and so, you know, as I, as I started to learn about, you know, off ice, taking care of myself, working out, getting bigger, getting stronger, getting faster, you know, all those things just started to combine. And, uh, and so, well, and, and then, you know, making the world junior team, you know, the first year was kind of an exclamation point and really, I think showed the scouts and people in the national hockey league, hope maybe we should give this guy a chance. Right. And, uh, and then the following year, um, uh, you know, the following year I ended up being the captain of Canada's national junior team. And we ended up winning the gold medal in uh, Moscow in, uh, in communist uh, Soviet union. And, uh, and from then on, you know, I just kept getting better and better and better and better. And, uh, and, you know, and, uh, to be honest with you, I couldn't have been drafted by a better team. I couldn't have gone into a better situation. Um, you know, uh, I went to Salt Lake city and, uh, our coach there was Paul Baxter and, and, uh, he gave me every single opportunity to, uh, to get better. He gave me lots of responsibility, um, you know, all those things. And so, you know, my, my half a year that I spent in Salt Lake, like I lit it up, like it was crazy how good I was playing, which then, you know, the flames couldn't, couldn't overlook me anymore either. Right. So, and then I got called up January 1st, 1989, and then six months later, I'm carrying the Stanley Cup around the Montreal Forum, you know. So, um, and uh, and you know, I was the fourth line centerman on the Calgary Flames Stanley Cup winning team. So, well, and a couple of questions I wanted to ask you, and I want to take you to that World Juniors. So you do you go over to Moscow, and of course, Team Canada is looking good. You had, I mean, what a team that was, and Russia had some players too, Andrew, right. on that team that were incredible. What was Sick. it like? What was it like to be over in Russia during the Cold War? That's number one. And number two, what was it like to win the freaking gold in in, in Russia? Russia? I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah you know, 
so in, in what was it? Uh, can't remember what year it was, but they did a reunion for us at one of the World Junior tournaments, and it was in Ottawa. So they brought that team back together. Really? And uh, um, the most incredible thing, and and pe- I always talk. People always ask me, you know, what 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 does winning mean, right? What does winning mean? And and uh, what was interesting was, you know, we were there to do a whole bunch of, you know, appearances and events and all this stuff, but we had a hospitality room in the hotel and every single moment that we weren't doing something for Hockey Canada, we were in that hospitality room and it was like we were beamed back 20 years. Wow. And everybody was in the role that they had on the team and everybody was telling stories about our experience and and uh, it was it was unbelievable. And uh, but the really cool thing about it was, I don't know if you guys remember, you know, the very first sort of big hockey series was 1972 where in Canada played the Soviet Union. Oh, yeah. And it was an epic eight game series. And so uh, we played the Russians and they had a line of Fedorov, McGillney and Bure was their number one line. OK, but we had a line of Mark Recchi, Adam Graves, and a guy named Robbie DeMaio, who's probably one of the toughest son of a bitches that ever played the game. So we counteracted that line with this line. Joe Sackick was our fourth line centerman on that team. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, uh, and so we beat the Russians three to two in the same rink that Paul Henderson scored the goal in 1972 did they have the old chicken wire up there for the uh, plexiglass still no they had i i can't i can't remember i think they they had plexiglass for sure (laughs) but uh but yeah like you know the world junior tournament is the greatest hockey tournament on the planet like there's nothing that even the olympics isn't as as great as the world junior tournament is and people always ask me you know which is better, Stanley Cup or Olympic gold medal? And I say World Junior every single time because it was the first was the first time that I won something, you know, on that level, right? And uh, and it was such an incredible experience. And uh, yeah, you know, it's one of those things I look back on my career and just you know have so many amazing memories. We we love to ask all our guests that did play in the NHL, and some it might only be a handful of games. Uh, if they were drafted, what was their draft story? We've heard some great ones. What was your draft story? Well, I mean, he was drafted in the eighth round, so you look at his stats. I thought he was a first-rounder. So, yeah, Andrew I mean, was like, hey, did you know that you know, he was eighth round? He was not yeah. first round. He's still like his rookie year. So what was the story? Uh, this is a great story. Um, so I was picked 471st in the draft because the first year of eligibility – I didn't get drafted. So there was 12 rounds that went by. I didn't get drafted. Then the following year, I got picked in the eighth round, uh, 166 overall. So 470 guys got drafted before me in the draft. So I always tell kids, it's not the number that you get, that you get picked. I said, getting drafted is an opportunity. That's all it is. It's an opportunity. That's it. doesn't matter what number it is whatever so um 
So I go and, you know, I had 472 points in junior, you know? Okay. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, so I go to my first training camp in Calgary and there's not one person in the organization thinks that I'm going to play in the NHL. Okay. And uh, so I basically, you know, walked through the front doors of the Calgary Flames dress room. I didn't open the door. I fucking kicked the door down and I said, I'm here. Let's go. <laughs> right. You know, and I, and by the time I left that training camp to go back to junior, every single person who thought I wasn't going to be an NHL player now believed that this was possible. Right. And, uh, you know, I signed, I signed a contract in December. I captained Canada's national junior team. Then when my season was over in Calgary, I went to Salt Lake city and we won the Turner cup. So in 18 months, I won a world junior, a Turner cup and a Stanley cup. I had like three rings in, in 18 months, you know, at the and beginning of my 20, 21, I was like 19, right? <laughs> you know, Crazy. Yeah. and, uh, and yeah. And so, you know, the best, the rest is kind of basically history, you know, and, and, uh, you know, like I said, I went to a great organization. Um, I don't think I could have been mentored by a better group of guys. You know, we had Lanny McDonald and Jim oh, Poplinski, uh, Tim Hunter, Joe Noondike, Gary Roberts, uh, Joey Mullen, uh, <laughs> Dougie Gilmore, Mike Vernon, like our team was stacked, you know, and, you know, when it's all said and done, we could have seven or eight guys from that team that is in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Yeah. You know, yeah. so yeah. and people don't, you know, people don't talk about how great of a team that was because right. it was, it was, and we could, we could beat you any way you wanted. You want to play a tight defensive game? Let's go. You want to drop the gloves? Let's go. You want to play 10, 9, 10, 8? Let's go. Right. You know, and, uh, yeah, it was just an incredible experience, you know. And you know, me being a Western Canadian kid, oh yeah, playing in Calgary was like oh, yeah. perfect, you know. Right. And uh, you know, I, I think one one of the biggest reasons why I ended up staying in Calgary is because the fans absolutely fell in love with me. And if they ever sent me down again, there there would be a riot in Calgary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we uh, we had on uh, Darren Banks uh, uh, a few times, and Darren ended up playing like 20 games with with the Bruins. He was definitely an enforcer, but he was drafted by Calgary. So he tells us a quick story about uh, he went to Calgary's training camp, and the the vets took him out to lunch and stuck him with like a two thousand dollar lunch bill. <laughs> now he's got no money, right? Right. So I won't get into the story, but you know, you, you understand the story. They just each got up at a different time and left him with like three grand of a bill. So did, uh, did you have any uh, initiations like that with the Calgary flames or, or did you uh, have a few for the rookies that came in when you were a vet? Yeah. Well, everybody all knows about the famous rookie dinners that, you know, each team has every year. So, um, but uh, uh, you know, it's just, it's all part of, you know, but, you know, the interesting thing was, you know, uh, I made $90,000 my first year in the NHL. Wow. What? That was it. Yeah. And the <laughs> year I, and the year I scored 50, I was making 125,000. Okay. 
And so after I scored 50, then I signed a four-year deal for $1.2 million. Okay. Yep. So I didn't make a million dollars a year till my fourth contract that I had. Wow. You wow. know, That's so crazy. yeah. And, uh, and then Brad Hall disclosed his salary and then all of a sudden it just went, <laughs> yeah, it just went nuts, you know? So, yeah. So, so was it kind of difficult at all being an NHL player during that time? And maybe other rookies are getting paid nearly as much as you had a hard time by hanging around them. I'm not almost be like afraid to hang around those vets. I get paid a lot of money. You can't keep up with well, them. And Banks, Banks said that he paid the bill. He, he maxed out his credit card, but he paid that bill. <laughs> yeah. And you can't buy anything else. So was well, there, was there, was that the, ever tough? This is an unbelievable stat. So the year we won the Stanley cup, our payroll was $7 million total. What? The what? whole team was $7 million. Wow. We need to hire that GM for the Bruins. Man. That's, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Somehow I don't think you'll you'll leave. No, but we but we did have an internal salary cap because nobody was going to make more than Lanny McDonald. Right. 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 I think Lanny was making four hundred grand at that time. So you know, and that was before you know that's before the salaries went crazy because yeah. so, nobody we didn't know what each other were were, were making. So you know, Theo. So. I, I definitely, I definitely want to get to some, some questions and talk a little bit about trauma and healing. But before we do that, just a couple quick, what we call lightning round questions that usually our listeners like, if you don't mind, it, it, sure. it might be a name. If you got a quick story, that's good. Um, I just uh, don't want to take too much time here because we want to move on. So this is a tough one. Who's the toughest goalie in your entire career to play against? Dominic Hasek. Worst arena or ice conditions in the NHL? Yeah, don't say Boston Garden. <laughs> I would have to say MSG. Really? Wow. Square Garden. Yep. Yeah. Especially I, I, when the circus was in town. It was like they should have gave us lacrosse bats instead <laughs> of hockey sticks. Because oh, the puck man. would just be bouncing all over the place. Yeah. Now, one one place that they always said was bad was the odd. Yeah, Buffalo. Buffalo. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Nobody yeah. likes the odd. Um, I love the odd. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everybody was like, yeah, it's probably the worst one we played in. So that's interesting. Uh, well, let's see. if you played in the odd, like if you got hit on the glass, you would be like almost three rows into that's how the glass had so oh, much. Really? Oh, yeah. And it was like it was a small building and like similar to the Boston Garden. Right. Wow. You know, and uh, those rinks were always fun to play in. Even yeah. the old Chicago Stadium was you know, the ice surface wasn't huge, but but it, the boards were really quick and the puck bounced all over the place. And yeah, it was it was awesome. So is it, is it true with the old pipe organ in the old Chicago Stadium? Oh, it's unbelievable. Really? Scared the fucking shit out of you when they, really? blew, that, when they blew that thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, what player got under your skin the most? Not you get under their skin, which is Massateekanen. Oh yes, yeah. Okay. Okay. I had to play every single shift of every single game against that guy. Oh my God. Well, who was the toughest player you had to fight in the NHL? All right. My first fight in the NHL was Ken Baumgartner. What, what do you, why was, was this when you were a full I was, addict? I was what? a rookie. I was a rookie. So um, this is, <laughs> this is a great story. So 
We're playing against LA in Calgary. And we call this kid up from the minors, a guy named Ken Sabert. And so Gretz is coming up the wall and he gets a pass and Gretz has got his head down. And this kid absolutely fucking buries him. Okay. Okay. Yard sale. Yard yeah. sale. Everybody's full on line burl. Okay. And I'm playing on the fourth line with Timmy Hunter. And I think it was Yuri Herdina or something, maybe somebody like that. And they had Jay Wells and Ken Baumgartner on the ice. Okay. So, of course, Ken and Jay go towards Timmy Hunter. And I'm like, they're going to try and two-on-one my fucking line mate. I better get in there. So I jumped on Baumgartner's back. <laughs> and he basically just goes like this, picks me off like a little mosquito, and fucking <laughs> drills me right between the eyes. So I have a scar, like, right here. Drills me right between the eyes. I'm bleeding all over the place. And... Uh, Next thing you know, I get a tap on my shoulder and I look and it's fucking Gretz. And he's like, kid, we got to get you to the bench. I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so as I'm, as he's skating me towards the bench, I say to myself, should I sucker Wayne Gretzky right now? <laughs> That's going through your head. It's like, hey, kid, yeah. the bench. Boy, you, like, I should boy, you, really, right you really took it on the head, didn't you? Yeah. And uh, so I, I had a, a momentary lapse in judgment. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Um, and so I go to the bench, uh, Bearcat, who is our trainer, uh, you know, cleans me up. I go in the, I go into the medical room. I get stitched up. I come out and I score two goals and we win the game. Awesome. <laughs> Hockey player. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, all right. Last one for, for this. Uh, the craziest and most embarrassing, embarrassing thing to happen to you during a game. Well, you've probably seen it on YouTube. So we were playing against Dallas. And uh, I got cut. Okay. I got cut. And so I had a whole bunch of blood on my jersey. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so the trainer couldn't find another jersey of mine. Right. So this fan throws a jersey over the glass <laughs> and I put this jersey on and it's got the whole team's autographs on the jersey. Yeah. 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 I, we see it. It's pretty so, so I'm like, I can't go out with a whole bunch of autographs on my jersey. So I took it off and they, they ended up uh, giving me. Uh, a jersey that didn't have a name on it, but it was it was number seventy six. So I wore seventy six for like a couple shifts in the, in the NHL. Wow! Wow! That is awesome. All right. So today is uh, a Bell Let's Talk Day in Canada and hopefully around the world. Um, we couldn't have a better guest, Andrew, to talk about mental health. Um, so Theo, September eighteenth, two thousand five, is an important date for you. Mm -hmm. uh, bring us through that day. Well, um, so I would say that, uh, you know, my mental illness showed up when I went to New York. Okay. So for many years, I, I did a really good job of coping with, you know, my, my mental illness with, through addictions. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, my mental health shows up in New York. And, and so I finally started getting some help and, 
and uh, and whatnot. And uh, but you know, still it's still not registering that I have a problem or I need it, need more help or whatever. So, um, so the night of September 17th, you know, I was in a really bad place. I was drunk. I was high. Um, and, and for some reason, uh, you know, it can't, it got to the point where, you know, I needed to make some changes in my life. So I end up in the, in the washroom by myself and uh i'm on my hands and knees and i'm crying and and i go to myself you know if i keep going down this road i'm gonna die you know and uh i don't want to die right so so i'm not a, a big religious guy but I'm, I'm you know i'm a very spiritual guy and i knew that there was something out there greater than myself which you know at that time i called god so i had it out with god in the in the washroom and i said to him i said uh I said, I'm done, you know, and I, and I said, you know, you can't put one more thing on my plate. I said, I'm full. Uh, end of the conversation. I said to him, I said, please take away the obsession to drink and do drugs. And I went to bed um, and I woke up the next morning. And as I'm walking to the washroom, I had a big mirror in my, uh, in my bathroom. And, uh, as I was rubbing the sleep out of my eyes, I glanced out of the corner of my eye and I saw my reflection in the mirror and I stopped dead in my tracks. And, and, uh, and I can't remember the last time I actually looked at myself in the mirror. You know, I was so full of shame and guilt and anger and resentment and all these things that, that uh, I hadn't really looked at myself in the mirror. And so like five minutes goes by, 10 minutes goes by, 20 minutes goes by. And I'm like, geez, I, I feel different. Right. And then all of a sudden it was just like, it was just like, you know, divine intervention. And, and, uh, I was like, Holy shit. I said, my prayer has been answered. And that was, that was, let me just see here. That was 5,973 days ago. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and I haven't had a drink or a drug, you know, since that day. And, and what's really happened is, you know, that started my, my journey of healing and self-discovery and all of these things. And I write this book and, and, uh, you know, uh, I finally realized, you know, there was a reason why, you know, I had my experience with my parents. Uh, there was a reason why I had my experience with the sexual abuse and all that stuff, because, you know, when the book came out, you know, I got run over by people, you know, everywhere I went, five, 10, 15, 20 people were coming up to book signings or speaking engagements or workshops that I was doing. And people were telling me their own story of, their sexual abuse. Right. And so what happened was I, I really found the true purpose for my life. And that was to, you know, live in the space of trauma, mental health and addiction, you know, and uh, you know, I've been in that space now for 15 years and been able to help thousands and thousands of people come to grips with, you know, with their own trauma experiences. And, uh, and yeah, so it's been, it's been really, it's been really awesome. So, and, and it's, it's not enough. Uh, I mean, today, even with the bell talk day here, we, uh, you know, it, it's all about, don't be afraid. Don't feel uh, guilty. Don't feel shame. But um, 
isn't it time we move past that? Yes. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. Yep. I mean, like, so can't we move past this, which you had, and this is your passion now, and I agree, this is exactly what you're supposed to do. You set the sports world, especially the hockey world, mm-hmm. Angel on Fire, when this book came out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know Theo by researching him, you know, he's not afraid to speak his mind on anything. (laughs) And, and, um, but look at, you know, what's happened. And so everybody's come out and said, I've had some sort of trauma, this, this, and that, but it's like, what do we do with it now? So Theo, what do we do with this now? I know what you've been doing, but for listeners that might be like, okay, it's not just enough to say, okay, I'm going to confess that this happened to me. Yeah. So the, the intention is, is always good in any sort of mental health group. The intention is great, okay? But we always leave one thing out. We're very aware that there's a mental health issue in, in the world. We're very aware that there's an addiction issue in the world. And we always leave out the trauma piece, okay? We always leave out the trauma piece. And that's the reason why you know, we've seen an, an, an increase in, you know, mental illness is because we haven't created a space for the trauma, which brings us into the mental health and addiction space, right? And, uh, you know, every mental health campaign starts with one in five Americans or one in five Canadians. And I'm, I'm going to myself, why are we shaming the one person who has mental illness when in my experience and in my research over the last 15 years, it's five and five. It's all of us, right? And, and so that only adds to the stigma of, of you know, mental health challenges is because we're singling out one person and we're actually leaving the other or we're telling the other four out of five that you guys are okay, right? Yep. And, and, uh, you know, there, there is a lot of judgment in the mental health space that has to go away. We have to get rid of that. Right. And just come to the simple fact that in your lifetime, you know, uh, the, the trauma is, is the teacher. Okay. The trauma is the teacher because what trauma does is it gives us adversity, right? And what comes from adversity? Resilience, right? And then when you have resilience, there isn't anything you can't overcome, right? And, and because we're seeing a spike in, in, in children, children's mental health is because they don't have that resilience built in yet, right? right? And as parents, we protect our kids because we don't want our kids to have the same experiences that we had, right? And so, you know, now we have this big, massive problem. But ultimately, what does it come down to? It doesn't come down to psychologists, psychiatry. It comes down to what we're doing right now. And we're having a conversation, right? A difficult conversation, but we're having a conversation. And it's between... People, two people, right? And and we need those kind of relationships that are non-judgmental, 
ones that, you know, I don't need any advice. I just need somebody to listen. I need somebody to believe me, right? Those are the kind of conversations we need to have. So I'm a big uh, believer in peer-to-peer counseling, right? I've had, a, I've had a sexual abuse experience. You've had a sexual abuse experience. Let's do this together. Let's go on this healing journey together, right? Instead of me trying to navigate through the the mental health system, which is completely run over because it's so prevalent and there's not enough skilled people for the amount of people that struggle, right? So that's why people get, you know, get left out, right? And so, you know, the, the cheapest, most effective kind of therapy that I found is group therapy, where you get a bunch of people in a room, you use vulnerability, so storytelling, to yep. create safety. And then once you have safety in the room, people just start popping up, telling their stories, you know? And, and then eventually, the ones who start to heal, what happens? They go, you know what? This group really helped me. So guess what? I'm going to take newcomers in the group and I'm going to help them. Right. And so we have this mantra, uh, helping is healing. Right. And that's how I've healed myself is by helping other people. Right. Because the worst place to be when you experience mental health challenges is alone and inside of your own head. That's the worst place you can be when you have mental health challenges. That's why you need a group of people or a community that can bring you out of your own head and get you into your heart space, right? Because in your heart space, that's where all the good stuff lives. Compassion, empathy, forgiveness, love, relationship. That's where all that good stuff lives. And if you're sitting alone in your house by yourself, you're not going to be able to get into that space. When did... um... When it, it sounds to me, and, and of course, I've, you know, I've, I've tried to do my homework on you here. So I, I know the answer to this, but I think it's important for you to talk about it, have it come from you. It's, when did you reach the point of, you know, it's not about like, say, your parents, you know, instead of saying they had their own addictions, it's really they had their own trauma. Yeah. Just like you've had your trauma. I've had my trauma. Everybody has. And it, yeah. seems, like, it seems like compassion rather than. Uh, being pissed off about this or that person that might have, you know, done whatever. When did you realize that it's really what you just said? It's about compassion to say, I, they were struggling with their own things. For sure. And it's okay. Yeah. So what I always tell people is I go, do you have a time machine? Because if you do, you can go back and change that experience. But I go, nobody has a time machine. Right. Right. And you can't change the past, but you can learn so that you can change the future, right? And, you know, any kind of pain, physical pain, emotional pain is a catalyst for change, right? So instead of getting sucked into the stigma of woe is me, what actually is happening is the universe is saying, We want you to work on this, right? Because when you work on it, you find the gift in the pain and the suffering. And the gift is 
being able to help somebody else who had trauma, just like yourself. That's the gift, right? It's not a burden. It's actually a gift. And, and, uh, so when you, when you, cause you always want to take something negative and turn it into a positive, right? So, yes. you know, that's what this is all about is taking a negative experience and learning from it. Um, and, and being able to come out on the other end and then help somebody else. Right. That's, that's, that's why the universe gives us these challenges is, is they know that we'll figure it out. We'll come out on the other end and then we'll give back. Right. Yeah. Charity, charity is, is, you know, charity has really saved my life. Like being involved in groups and being involved in different kinds of charities, uh, you know, has, has changed my life because, because when you're helping somebody else, guess what? You're not in your own head. Right. Sure. Right? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. We want to be respectful of your time, but I do want to ask this. You do talk about a time when uh, you had to, I think you kind of talked about like the process of rewiring your brain. Yeah. And a three steps uh, talking about an emotional, physical, and spiritual, you kind of hit upon the spiritual but uh, can you kind of, uh, you know, elaborate here? I don't want to keep you over, but yep. I, I think it's great to have you talk yeah. about that. Well, that's the process of healing, right? It's emotional, it's physical, and it's spiritual. And if any one of those things is out of whack, you're going to struggle, right? Ah. Because that's the harmony piece, right? And so I do something emotional for my recovery. I do something physical for my recovery and I do something spiritual for my recovery. Right. And that can come, you know, there's 10,000 different ways to heal. Right. And what you need to do is you just need to be willing, willing to try anything so you can find your formula so that you can live your life one day at a time. Right. Because when we're present in the moment, we have everything we need. Right. They say, if you think about the past, that's depression. If you think about the future, that's anxiety, right? Yeah, yeah. And so where's the planet right now? Well, we're living in a very high state of anxiety. Why? Because we, didn't, we don't know what the future holds, yeah. right? So you always need to bring it back to the moment, which is really, really hard. Like, I, I'm not an expert on that at all, you know? But I try to experience peace, joy, happiness for five seconds or 10 seconds, right? <laughs> because I'm not used to that feeling. Like my body doesn't know what that feels like because I've always been, you know, uh, in a high state of, you know, fight, flight and freeze response, right? And so, you know, uh, working to get five seconds and then working to get 10 15, 20, right? Because it's a process. And when you're doing that, you're actually retraining your nervous system and you're retraining your brain that this is what normal is, yeah. right? So you need to have those three practices in your life every single day, which is hard work. Like this isn't, this isn't, you know, this isn't easy work. It's hard work. And, uh, but I can tell you, if you do the work, amazing things happen. Well, I mean, and it's clear after reading uh, both your books, but uh, particularly uh, your autobiography, and then doing uh, a little bit of, you know, up-to-date research and what you've been doing, 
I tell you, it, you've had like an amazing hockey career, but man, you're, I think, having a more meaningful career, mission, passion, whatever it is. I, I, I you know, I just can't imagine right. how great you must feel with everybody coming up and going, you know, thanks. Yeah. Because you really did open the door. I remember 2009 when he came out with the, with the shit that he'd gone through. But, I mean, but if, you, was- if you remember the, the bathroom story, what happened that night was I surrendered and I turned my will and my life over to the care of God, Allah, Buddha, Jehovah, a tree in my backyard, whatever, whatever your higher power is. And I gave up control of my life. And I said, universe take over. I'm not going to step in. I'm out. You just tell me what to do. I won't question it. I won't nothing. And ever since that day happened, I've had this amazing journey of healing. I've had an amazing journey of meeting incredible people with incredible stories and, and, and all that. And so, you know, that's that, that's that spiritual piece, you know, that, that, you know, has to happen and that surrender has to happen. Right. Right. But a lot of people have a real tough time giving up control. Right. Right. But ultimately, ultimately we have control over nothing. Right. It's true. Yeah. Nothing. Right. You know, I, I really believe that our, our, there, there are no coincidences, right? Like there's a reason why you guys and me are together today. This this is not by coincidence, right? Because somebody who's listening to this podcast is going to go, holy shit, that guy's speaking my language, you know? So there are no coincidences. Everything happens for a reason, right? Yeah. And that's when you give up control and you trust in, you know, in the universe. Right. I don't think we could end this podcast on a better note than that. That was like, you know, perfectly. Yeah. You know, Theo, we'll say goodbye off here. All I can do is pause this, but officially we can't thank you enough. Not only the hockey, but the last 20 minutes. And I tell you, I'll be honest, you know, learning about it's not the addiction that it's actually the trauma was something I've never thought about until I read your book. Yeah. If I didn't have the trauma, I wouldn't have the story. Right. You know, my, my life would have went a whole different direction, a whole different path. Right. So that's why I've embraced the, the trauma in my life and went, Holy shit, this is actually a gift, not a burden, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Amazing. But we can't thank you. We'll say goodbye off air, but officially thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. for Theo Flurry. Yeah. And, you know, while people will have their opinions, as he's always seems like in the midst of some sort of controversy, I mean, anybody could be with political stuff. He had an important message today that I think anybody everybody should listen to correct? which which isn't political you should say that well yeah I absolutely. Mean, mental health is not political no it's, it's being a human being but the point is, is i know everybody's obsessed with what's being posted on social media but the thing is is this is important to talk about to talk about mental health and uh i think it was it was he had very good words to say today hopefully somebody need to hear that I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And, you know, I needed to hear some of that, you know, doing research for our guests, uh, for our listeners, you know, we, we try to do our homework as yep. everybody knows. And while we may know surface stuff, once we dig deep, all of our guests have an interesting, unique story. And whether it be um, our players that are involved and found their um, life 
in spirituality, uh, particularly, um, you know, with Jesus Christ. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Gary Steffes, uh, Ian Kesserich we've had on, uh, Bobby Robbins, um, all the way through, you know, Theo Flory, where he's talking about spirituality, but he's talking about whatever your, you know, God, your deity may be. Right. So this is just, uh, you know, it, it, it's wonderful for us as fans. We could ask him nothing but hockey questions for four hours or right. four days. Um, and I think we got some good, unique yeah. questions. It's hard because you want to ask questions that he, our guests don't answer always, but you've got to hit some of them. So hopefully we, he's told some stories that uh, you know, haven't been told in a while. But great guy, great guest. And like you know, we uh, off air, we, we, we told uh, Theo that you know, we didn't know if we'd get him on the podcast. Right. Andrew, you reached out. And sure enough, he was, you know, willing to come on the podcast and, and is a great guy. And, you know, well, it's, and it's guys like Theo Fleury and all of our previous guests that um, continue to show support, you know, not only for our father and son podcast, but, you know, the hockey world too, to come on and talk about their story and, you know, just being nice to take that time, man, you know, so we, we appreciate Theo coming on everybody else. And uh, man, this is just an awesome episode. Bell, Bell, let's talk today, correct? That's what... it is. It's this is January 26, yep. uh, 2022. And the great thing about our episodes with our guests is, you know, we're not talking per se current hockey talk, which would be dated. You know, uh, you could be listening to this podcast three years from now and, and might be the first time you hear it and it's relevant. Uh, but um, yeah, today is the uh, Bell Talk. And people should not be afraid to, you know, like he said, be vulnerable, be willing to, uh, you know, and if even people are going to be rude enough to judge you, you know, you're going to find many people that aren't going to judge you. And you need to fill your world with the people that are going to support you and lift you up rather than, than judge you. Right. But not to end on a, on a sad note, our next guest is going to be our uh, wonderful, wonderful friend, Dave Capilano. Yep. And he'll be on uh our next podcast, and we're going to talk about his high school coach uh, quite a bit. We'll talk about uh, some current Bruins things and where the Bruins need to go. So that'll be coming up a, a week from now. I think we're going to record that on Friday, yep. but we'll wait a few days to release that. So we want to thank everybody. We're on every podcast. Uh, thank you to Black and Gold uh, for continuing to uh, it would be our parent company. And is that it, Andrew? That's pretty much it. We just appreciate everybody continuing to tune in. And we hope you all have a wonderful day and enjoyed the episode. And this is episode 60, I think. Big 6-0. Thank you again.